1: Today, I'm excited to welcome Gwen Bernyte, author of the wonderful new book, The Face of Peace. Gwen is a junior research fellow in anthropology at Merton College, University of Oxford, and also author of an earlier book, Chocolate, Politics, and Peacebuilding, which, like her newest work, focuses on efforts to build peace in Colombia. Specifically, The Face of Peace offers a unique and fascinating look inside the Colombian government in 2017 and 2018, Uh, as well as a little before and after, as it had just negotiated a landmark peace agreement meant to to end a half-century conflict with the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. But it was an agreement that was and is very controversial within Colombian society, strenuously opposed by factions of the political right. In ethnographic research for the book, Gwen joined the office of the High Commissioner for Peace the government institution responsible for the process, to observe and participate in an innovative peace pedagogy strategy to explain the agreement to Colombian society. Her multi-scale ethnography reveals the challenges government officials experienced communicating with skeptical audiences and translating the peace process for public opinion. And it also offers an argument important for those of us interested in government society relations in peace processes, and even beyond peace processes and the Colombian example, how liberalism responds to so-called post-truth politics. Uh, so, Gwen, first of all, thank you for taking the time to, to speak to me today, and, and congratulations on what really is a fascinating book.
0: Thanks, Alex. It's fantastic to be here.
1: Uh, so I want to start by asking about your, your trajectory, uh, and, and sort of how you got interested in Colombia, Colombia's peace process. Uh, you spell this out in the book that even before being in academia, you were uh, working for NGOs, um, you were in sort of the peace building world, uh, you did an ethnography of a peace community, you you did a, a wonderful documentary film. Uh, so yeah, can, can you sort of give us the, sort of the, the personal historical lead up uh, to this project?
0: Sure, well, um... Yeah, as you as you mentioned, I I was initially in Colombia as part of the peacebuilding world as a practitioner. I actually never expected to work in academia. I never expected to be an anthropologist. My background is actually in literature. Um, and after studying literature at Leeds and Cambridge universities, I decided I um, I wanted to work in human rights. I wanted to grapple with kind of theoretical issues in the real world. Um, And so I I went off to work in human rights organizations, and one thing led to another. Um, And because I spoke Spanish, I was offered a a, a research internship in the International Center for Transitional Justice. Um, And actually, they were going to send me to Beirut, but um, they they then, because I spoke Spanish, sent me to Colombia. And I knew nothing about Colombia, um, but I found myself thrown in at the deep end doing research on the issue of reparations to the victims of armed conflict. And I was absolutely fascinated. Um, And so then I ended up getting a job in Peace Brigades International, an NGO that provides protective accompaniment to human rights defenders at risk in conflict zones around the world. And I lived for two years in the conflict region of Urabá in the northwest of Colombia doing this job, um, accompanying communities and human rights defenders who were um, peacefully and legally defending their land, um, fighting for justice for human rights abuses, and in many ways, it was a very ethnographic experience, um, only I didn't know that that's uh, what it was because I didn't have that language at that time. But my colleagues and I spent a lot of time thinking about how we were relating to the communities, trying to understand the communities in their own terms and um, and ultimately being in solidarity with the communities. Um, and I mean, an experience like that turns your life upside down and so it did mine and I decided I wanted to study anthropology as a way to just trying to understand what I'd spent the last two years of my life living through very labor intensive form of therapy really um and so I went to the <laughs> I went to the national I mean to be honest I think a lot of anthropologists end up doing research that is somehow trying to make sense of who they are and what they're doing in, in the world but um but this was a yeah it was, um a rather extreme way of trying to deal with, with, with my experience but it was it was fascinating so I, I went to the National University of Colombia in Bogota and I studied anthropology in a two year master's course which was both um, uh, sort of taught classes but also a sustained original piece of research um, unlike perhaps master's degrees uh, in the UK anyway um, and so I spent my time half in Bogota studying and half in Urabá visiting the peace community of San Jose departado, which is um, the community that I'd worked with in the NGO that had most sort of sparked my interest—I like to blame them for becoming an anthropologist. Really, uh, say it's all their fault. <laughs> um, and I was—I was really intrigued by their uh, their work producing fair trade organic cacao. They're famous internationally for being um, one of, the, I suppose, one of the most high profile grassroots peace building initiatives. They—they um, they declared themselves neutral to the war um as a way of trying to stay in their land in the midst of a conflict zone and refuse being involved in the war either by left-wing guerrilla right-wing paramilitaries or by state armed forces and so they're kind of well known internationally in the human rights world for that position but um I was very interested in their farming of organic cacao because they export cacao to lush cosmetics you know the smelly soap shop um that I'm sure everyone will be familiar with um and um and and I thought, well, you know, looking at their everyday work of farming could maybe illuminate their political identity as a grassroots peace building organisation. And, of course, what do anthropologists do? Well, we look at people's everyday lives and work and what the peace community do in their everyday lives is farm cacao. And so that was the research that led to my first book um, and, and also the film. Um, but while I was living in Bogota, I got very involved in civil society peace initiatives because the peace process um, at a national level had begun between the government and the FARC um, and, you know, initially I, the peace community, for example, were very skeptical about, about the peace process, like many other civil society organizations and um, human rights defenders and people kind of broadly on Colombian leftist um, politics. Um, but as the peace process evolved, people started to take it more seriously, started to come around to it and started to think that they needed to find ways to support the government's um, initiative to find a negotiated solution to the conflict, even while they didn't necessarily support the government of Juan Manuel Santos himself politically, um, which is a very complex kind of balance to strike. And it's a, it's a difficult dilemma that different groups face in different ways. I'm sure in your work, you've seen some version of this, play out in Briseño and um, I was working with a, a peace-building organisation in Bogota during my my time at the Nacional called Prodemos el Diálogo or Embrace Dialogue, which, which was trying to support the negotiated solution to the armed conflict. And so I um, began to see the peace community's story as a story that could usefully contribute to the national debates going on in Colombia about what peace was and what it might involve. And so I used my film um, to to do peace pedagogy. And we, we all did peace pedagogy in that time frame of sort of 2014 to 2016, which just meant going around the country, explaining to people what was being negotiated and trying to get people to sort of mobilize around the peace process. Um, and then, then 2016 came and the peace agreement was reached And on the 2nd of October, there was a referendum on the deal. And I had already applied to my PhD programme. In fact, I had proposed a a project that was going to be um, starting in, in 2016 in October um, that was going to be about why why the peace process succeeded in winning the referendum, thanks to the efforts of the civil society organisations doing peace pedagogy, and in spite of the poor efforts of the government doing peace pedagogy. This was my kind of assumption at the time. This, and, this, um, I had,
1: this is this is a, a part that I sort of highlighted in the book. Yeah. That kind of oh that that that, yeah. that that hurts a little bit. So so what happened with that plan?
0: Well then. <laughs> I mean, actually I was supposed to be flying back on the 24th of September or the 20 something of September, but then, then it was announced there was going to be a referendum or in October, no, in August, sorry. I emailed my supervisor. I was like, look, I've got to stay another month because, because this is happening now, this is history now. And, and so they said yes. And, and so I, I changed my flight to the 4th of October thinking, well, okay, so there'll be the referendum on the 2nd of October. I'll have a hangover on the, on the 3rd of October and like, uh, you know, we'll all celebrate and then I'll pack my stuff and I'll leave on the 4th. So just, to um, be, then... just to be
1: clear, this was the peace, pro- the, the peace agreement had been negotiated between the government and the, the far guerrilla group. And the government chose sort of to, to legitimate the peace agreement by putting it to a national a vote, public
0: referendum. Yeah.
1: Widely expected to approve peace.
0: Exactly. Yes. The polls all predicted a win for the yes. Well, most of the polls. um but there was, you know, growing disinformation that we were seeing in, in our sort of peace pedagogy talks around the country, people coming with some interesting ideas, which I'll maybe come to in a moment. But we didn't take them that seriously. Um, in fact, I remember on the day of the vote, there was a bunch of us from Royal de Dialogo. We organized a party and we organized a kind of screen for everyone to come together and have a drink and a barbecue and watch the results come in together. And we had a bet to see... Um, you know, who could get closest to the results. And, you know, we put like 60-40 to the yes and the no, 70-30, yes, no, you know, um, nobody thought that the no was going to win. Um, and then of course the no won and it was devastating. And so there was a hangover, um, but not of the celebratory kind. And then I was on a plane um, a couple of days later and I flew back to to London, which is where I'm from, to start my PhD programme at UCL, University College London, um, having to completely change my whole idea and the whole thing ended up becoming about the referendum. Um, Well... The referendum as a focal point um but which was a window into government society relations in the peace process more broadly so i guess that's a very long-winded way of saying that's the backstory to this project
1: no that's that's really interesting and um and i guess i'll, I'll jump in to say our listeners may have heard uh, an american and an english accent um and it's worth pointing out as you do in the book that uh this vote was i think three months after brexit and like a month before trump so there's sort of this context of the that you refer to as tr- post-truth politics, but kind of specifically within uh, not it's not even the left, but sort of liberal mainstream politics of this sort of handwringing, you know, what went wrong in these elections, and in particular focus on sort of uh, misinformation and frustration, frustration that that you portray. Um, within the book of like, you know, how could these narratives that uh, that just seem so self evidently fake? You know, how are voters in, in the U.S.? I was in Colombia for for all of those elections actually. But how uh, you know how are people buying what Trump is selling? Um, what what were those narratives kind of specifically in the in the Colombian context?
0: Yeah, so um, I really like the word you use, hand-wringing, because I really think that is what happened among kind of global liberal um, sort of intellectuals, commentators and elites around the world after 2016. 2016 was the year that post-truth was kind of made word of the year by oxford dictionaries um so, that's, and, that's and quite yes, the honor yeah it is and we started it over here with the brexit referendum which again nobody had anticipated was going to lose um and and then colombia followed hard on its heels but in a way it's the one that most that globally people don't Think about so much, um, but you know, for those of us who work on Colombia and who have a relationship to the UK and the US, the three very much went together. So, in Colombia, what happened was um, during the negotiations, which started in 2012 um, with the government of Juan Manuel Santos, uh, opposition began by former President Alvaro Uribe, who um, he and he founded a, a political party called the the Centro Democrático, the Democratic Center Party. Um, to explicitly oppose the peace process between the government and the FARC. They claimed that the government was negotiating with terrorists. Um, and they started to spread narratives of opposition to the peace process as early as 2012. And this grew throughout the four years of the, of the peace process. And um, my book focuses on how the Santos government tried to counter that all throughout those negotiations. But the whole thing ramped up a lot in the context of the referendum because referendum is... Referendums are um, electoral conjuncture that allows these sorts of things to to really um, sort of catapult. And the, the main sort of opposition narratives that they had was, yes, negotiating with terrorists, um, but they also said things like, if the peace agreement goes ahead, Colombia will become communist, the next Venezuela, there'll be an end to private property. Um, There'll be complete impunity for human rights crimes, despite the fact that the International Criminal Court supported the transitional justice formula being proposed by the peace agreement. And um, perhaps most Bizarrely, gender ideology will be imposed on children in schools, turn them all gay, and destroy the traditional Colombian family. Now, all of this does sound not that completely unfamiliar to us in 2023, but in 2016, this was really just the beginning um, of this kind of disinformation campaign. And of course, as with other disinformation campaigns we've seen around the world, this kind of messaging was spread on public billboards, it was spoken from church pulpits, it was handed out in pamphlets on traffic lights, it was you know, promoted on on radios, um, and it was absolutely spread like wildfire on WhatsApp and on Facebook um, and social media of all kinds. And um, yeah, that's 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 what happened. It was really it was really sad, but it was it was a problem because um, you know one of the things that I think and to go back to your phrase "liberal hand wringing," one of the problems that I've you know encountered. Um, in in thinking about this research is how not to demonize the no voters um, and not because you know there was a sort of generalized narrative which happened in Colombia but it also happened in the UK and the US after the, the, the same elections in 2016 that people assumed that everyone who had voted in the opposite way, i.e. the winning voters, were all duped by um, manipulation, by lies, by disinformation. Just the simple branding of something as disinformation in of itself is a political act. Um, It presumes that we know better. They're duped, they're wrong, they've been manipulated, and we know the truth. And that's a terribly condescending position. And so instead of focusing on the kind of... um, the kind of persuasiveness of the no vote, which, you know, you can analyze in lots of different ways. Um, The no vote appeals to people who've suffered the conflict in certain kinds of ways or who have experienced specific narratives about the past of the conflict. Um, Instead of looking at, at how that works, I was really interested in looking at the, liberal responses to this kind of messaging and to the way that liberalism had, well, the liberal Colombian government had tried to counter this disinformation with what they saw as rational truths and how they had this kind of opposition in their heads that I see as a very culturally liberal opposition between truth and lies, myths and realities, rationality and emotions, and how that creates a kind of positioning that, um, that, that, that doesn't take the other seriously as an interlocutor or as somebody with a valid position. And I think that that's very problematic. And I think that there are, there's a great need to sort of take this kind of liberal positioning more critically and more self-reflexively around the world today, because although there are lots of scholars looking at populism and, and what people might see as populism or post-truth politics, which is, a, again, a kind of liberal term um, that I use in inverted commas, um I think we need to turn the lens onto ourselves, onto how we try to combat um, these sorts of things, because around the world, people are asking, you know, how, how could we stop disinformation campaigns? And here I have in my book a story of an attempt to counter disinformation, which had its, its pros and its cons. It learned lots of lessons along the way. Um, but I think we need to interrogate the, the idea that rational explaining is ever not political, because that was the kind of positioning that they came from.
1: So that's a, that's a really important argument, uh, and I, I love the way you tie in these these three different votes and and um, sort of a more a more general uh, global movement that that is you know whether it's liberal hand wringing or whether it's maybe people who position ourselves. I don't want to speak for you, but even um, you know within Colombian society, you're certainly writing about people who accepted the Santos government, because they saw it as a better solution, but maybe even weren't themselves particularly, because it's still a right-wing government. Um, but I want to talk about your use of we, because it's a very appropriate use. Um, and one one thing that I, I think is important to understand the context of your analysis is that uh, you are an ethnographer, and ethnography which sometimes is is called participant observation, right? Sometimes is more observation. You were uh, participating and participating um, strenuously within the peace pedagogy process. Even aside from uh, your work before the referendum with NGOs, uh, it seemed like you very much uh, crafted a research project that said, I'm gonna be within within this uh, government agency, um, and help out, um, and 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 work with them. So, can you describe uh, what you did, what your what form your participation took? Maybe through that, what the agency was actually doing, um, and also like what what do you think you learned from actually participating, as opposed to just observing or interviewing people, which is um, you know what what most people writing about these important questions do.
0: Okay, I'll try and get to all of those questions, but you might have to remind me if I lose bits of them. But that, that, I mean, you're quite right to thread it all together like that. Um, so what did I actually do? And what did the Office of the High Commission of a Peace actually do? So the Office of the High Commission of a Peace, as you mentioned in your introduction, is the branch of the Colombian government that was in charge of doing the peace negotiations. Um, and they also set up this team um, to do what they called peace pedagogy, which was a mode of action that actually has no world precedent in peace processes. This was a world first, um, perhaps because this is the first sort of major world peace process that is taking place in the era of the kind of global disinformation economy or information economy, whatever you want to call it. and uh and they had to they had to contend with 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 this. Also because um the peace talks took place in Havana and they were confidential, which was really important to reach reach a deal, but it meant that there was there was a lot of limitations in the information that was publicly available, and Colombian society kind of called on the government and said, Look, you need to give us more about you need to explain to us what's going on. And so they set up this team um which went around the country. Um, from 2013 onwards, explaining to people what was being negotiated and the ad- sort of advances in the negotiations in different moments um, based on what information was available publicly. Um, and uh, this looked like people giving talks in universities, in village sports stadiums, in local chambers of commerce, um, to rural communities, to state officials of Local institutions, to students, to local media, to um, local organisations in different regions, to all sorts of different communities and audiences, doing in-person talks, um, and, uh, and 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 trying to explain what was what was being negotiated. The people doing this work, it was important that they were from the institution that was doing. The negotiations because it was like having someone there who could tell you about the peace process from the horse's mouth it wasn't just some you know press person it was someone from the office in charge of negotiations it was a peace technocrat if you like um they were not communicators they were not pedagogues and it's quite interesting the word pedagogy and that was the word that that got used in colombia pedagogia de paz which i think comes very much from colombian civil society rather than the government but it's a term that filtered into government discourse but they were not trained in public speaking they were not trained in education um, as method or anything like that so there were sort of pluses and minuses to that um and they were the ones who, um, in a way, were, were in charge of, they were not in charge of doing the campaign. There was also a, a referendum campaign for the one month before the the referendum. Um, but certainly their peace pedagogy predated the campaign and people conflated peace pedagogy with campaigning. In fact, one of the tensions I point out in the book is this kind of apparent binary between education and politics or campaigning and pedagogy, um, which actually kind of feel fall, falls falls apart when when you're actually speaking to people about the thing on the ground. Um, anyway, after the referendum, as I mentioned, I returned to the UK, and I became very interested in the criticisms that people were making of the government saying the government didn't do enough peace pedagogy. Um, and so I thought, huh, well, I want to go and find out what peace pedagogy they did do before the referendum and what pedagogy are they going to do after the referendum when peace pedagogy continued to be seen as very important because there were elections in 2018 which were seen as very much a rerun of the the, the referendum because um, the people who'd opposed the deal, um, the Democratic Centre Party, were campaigning um, in advance of the elections on a platform of opposing the peace deal, continuing to oppose the peace deal. Um, and their candidate ivan duque was was promising to destroy the deal in some way or other um and people who the other 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 candidates were promising to continue the peace agreement um and so it became very much about explaining the peace deal in order to get Colombian society to vote for um any candidate it wasn't particularly um partisan any candidate who who would continue implementing the peace agreement um and so uh so I kind of knocked on the door of the office of the High Commissioner for Peace and just said, "Hey, <laughs> um, can I come and hang out with you guys for a year, um, and 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 try to understand what you're doing, the challenges you're facing?" And they were very, um, you know, welcoming and very generous in their um, acceptance of, of me going and spending a year there. And institutional ethnography is always an interesting positionality because um it's not like going and hanging out in a community you're in a workplace um but they 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 perhaps they accepted my uh, proposal partly because they were a team of people who were already very kind of connected to international expertise and international academia they drew a lot on international academic models and 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 input for their peace policies um they also i think were quite open minded to me because of my experience um working with Rodancito dialogo and doing peace pedagogy myself and so they they accepted my proposal to come and spend a year with them so i was working with them for a year as a kind of volunteer um i was not paid by them i didn't have a contract with them and they understood you know that my work there was to observe what they were doing but i also got involved in meetings i didn't do peace pedagogy myself so i never represented the government in public in, in the way they were doing. But I went with them to peace pedagogy sessions around the country. I spent time with them in the office in their meetings. I offered some ideas. I helped out with some kind of menial tasks like translation or taking minutes of meetings. Um, and then I also did a whole bunch of interviews with, with, with them and with former members and people around other parts of the government and the FARC and civil society. Um, So that was kind of what I did Um, and in terms of what I gleaned from that experience that I wouldn't have gleaned from just doing interviews I learned about well I saw I was able to witness their everyday work and lives which is not possible when especially when you're interviewing bureaucrats right you you get a very kind of decontextualized view of government when you speak to different bureaucrats in their office, you don't see how they interact with each other. You don't see the construction of their shared common sense. You don't see how they debate things in meetings. Um, You don't see how, you know, one of them can say one thing, another one can say another thing, but the thing that gets into the policy document is a different thing altogether. Um, But also I, although I wasn't doing peace pedagogy myself, I did um, have to, liaise with civil society project participants um on behalf of the office so that meant that you know there were some peace pedagogy projects where they tried to uh, work with civil society organizations um to, to craft what they called new narratives for peace and i i was involved in that project and um so i had to call people and For for people, for civil society participants in the project, I was just another person hanging out with the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace. They didn't necessarily distinguish, they saw I was the foreigner, but they didn't necessarily distinguish me that much. And I got to experience the frustration of speaking to people as the government, in particularly letting people down as the government, because... um, they constantly you know, had to renege on their commitments due to bureaucratic obstacles that they hadn't foreseen. So they were trying to do things, but then paperwork would get in the way um, or you know, the politics of international donors funding their projects would get in the way and um, they would have to call people and let them down. And so I, I had to do that sometimes. And I hated it because you were um, representing the unfulfilling state, which they were very critical of they knew all about this kind of stereotype of the state that that promises things and then doesn't fulfill but they were unable to prevent this state being reincarnated um and and you you get to feel the distrust that people have in the state when you embody that unfulfilling untrustworthy state and i experienced a fraction of it because i really didn't have to do it very much um but i could see how how it it was such a a sort of huge responsibility for them to go through that very emotional process of being the state they didn't want to be. Um, so I think that that's the insight that participant observation gives you that you don't get from just um, seeing things from the outside.
1: So that that really spoke to me. I mean, you, you briefly mentioned that, uh, you know, I've also been researching the, the Colombian peace process in a, a very different context, which is a, a rural community that's critical for, for the implementation of the peace agreement and specifically a a coca substitution program, um, seeking to replace illegal coca growing, that's the raw material for cocaine, as you clearly know, um, with, with legal agriculture. And as the government has, has failed to live up to the promises of coca substitution, sort of this idea of what you call, um, or what they call, and you, and you write darkara, so they have to that, that these um, these state officials have to give face to society, uh, represent the government. Uh, this is sort of how the, the sort of the meaning and the image of the government and of the state is, is enacted to people. But at the same time, you know, they're they're taking responsibility or for things, or even it sometimes seeking not to take not to take personal responsibility for things that are not their. Their fault, but there, there really are decades and decades of broken commitments, sort of behind this that, that have led to uh, sort of a profound mistrust in by the society in the state. Um, so this this was all sort of a way to introduce that what what I think is maybe one of the primary um, theoretical findings of the book, and it's in the title right, which, which is this idea of the, the face of the government, um, which you, you use to think through these relations between the government and society. Um, that's uh, sort of embodied within public perception, but then also the actual government officials uh, that people encounter and sort of symbolic representations of the state. And there's an interesting interplay between the face of a government, which is, you know, may may change every four years, uh, and certainly, you know, you know the the, the Santos government that was uh, that was in power while you were studying um, was was going against the the image of the previous government, which was the Uribe government that had been uh, wanting to make war rather than peace and continued opposing. Uh, this is the Centro Democrático that you're talking about that was continuing to, to oppose the peace process. Um, so I, I thought Colombia was a really interesting case, sort of to think through this um, as an argument for political anthropology um, more in general. So um, maybe, yeah, what can you say a little more about what this idea of the face of the government is? I, I gave it a very basic introduction but um why why it's important and sort of what what we get out of studying this particularly in in Colombia
0: yeah um so the book is called the face of peace because uh, the officials I was working with continually spoke about the difficulties of having to give face in Spanish dar la cara Which is a Colombian idiom that means both to be present in physical encounters with someone and to take responsibility to someone for something, like in the English phrase of facing the music, I guess. Um, And they would say things like, it's not our fault, the peace process is falling apart, but we're the ones who have to go and give face to people, dar la cara a la gente in the regions. Um, And... So I take this phrase from them um, of giving face, which connotes these two things of physical presence and responsibility to propose this wider analytical framework, the face of the government, as a, as a, as a way of thinking through government society relations and thinking about how um, all governments face society in, in different ways, um, through both kind of individual officials going and meeting with people in one-to-one encounters or one-on-many encounters and um you know then uh, presidential or ministerial appearances in the media um and and so on and so forth and i think of the face of the government as a construct um in the kind of public imaginary that is forged not just out of the in Colombian case in a presidential system out of the president and their public relations efforts, but also out of a whole host of institutions and, um, and, and people and processes and policies and actions. Um, and how that combines with the kind of individual officials meeting with people in the name of the government charged with representing the government in public. Um, and I also think of facing as a process, as in, as in, as in facing the music. Um, And because the Santos government's main policy was the peace process, um, I argue that his government sought to convey a face of peace, hence the title of the book. Um, But yes, exactly. Different governments have different faces. Um, Just a brief footnote to what you said. Uribe did try to make peace with the FARC. He just didn't manage to do so. (laughs) Uh, But yes, his, his face was a very different Face, and I think that you know. Then subsequently, after Santos, Duke, his face was different, and now we have Petro in charge, who's presenting a different face altogether. And I think it would be interesting to see if the framework would be useful to study these other governments in Colombia. Um, but uh, I think that the 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 argument that I'm trying to make is that these these processes, these kind of public imaginaries of the government, um, they they have an impact on the outcomes of politics. Um, They have an impact also on the experiences of individual government officials, because when any individual government official goes to speak to people to represent the government to people in public, they don't just see that individual, they see this face of the government, this overall imagined persona, or a kind of a a thing that has an imagined persona or character. Um, And I take I draw a lot on anthropology of the state, which is a very extensive subfield, which understands the state not as homogenous, but as you know, culturally constituted through many people, institutions, through encounters between state and society. Um, and you know, it's well established by this field that the state has many different faces, if you like. That um, you know, one institution can be benevolent, can promise to implement a peace accord, while the other. Another institution can be uh, repressive. Um, for example, it, you know there can be an army that is um, responding violently to civilians or whatever. Um, and but but what I what I argue is that different institutions that the government is an institution within that wider state that that has a sort of that should be analysed as a discrete. Part It's it's part of, but it's also discrete from the wider state. Um, and I think it's important to, to draw that line between governments and states because governments do change every four years and they have a unique characteristic, which is that when the government changes, the rest of the state changes because governments can change the other faces of the state by putting in place ministers or other personnel or creating laws or policies Um, They can't necessarily unilaterally control the rest of the state apparatus. It's not a one-way street, but they have a great power to influence the rest of the state, and so they're really important for for their societies. Um, And so this is kind of a a bit about the the, the framework of the face of the government and why I think it's important um, to think about about how governments can be seen as having faces. Um, And I think in Colombia this is particularly a useful to look at it because of the peace process and because i do think that government society relations was um sort of the main downfall of the peace process in the sense that um and and this is showed by the referendum but not it's not just the referendums it's exemplified by the referendum it's not because of the referendum um because the government invested a lot of efforts in negotiating with the FARC and they did succeed in um, achieving a very remarkable peace deal which you know one can criticize from a theoretical standpoint in many ways as being a liberal peace and so on and so forth but nevertheless does represent a very um notable advance in kind of peacemaking efforts worldwide it was hailed internationally as the most complete peace agreement in the world so far because it wasn't just about disarming the FARC, it was also about making various structural transformations such as rural reform, widening political participation, tackling the drug problem, which you um, study yourself, um, which has fueled the Colombian conflict, at least since the 1980s, and providing justice and redress to over 8 million victims of the conflict, 9 million, I think now, um, according to the latest figures. Um, so it was it was this very sophisticated thing, which took a lot of effort to reach, it was not easy. Because negotiating a peace deal with a guerrilla that has been, you know, you've been fighting with for 50 years is really very challenging. But they didn't put the same effort into building a government society alliance for peace, into bringing society along with them um, and helping people be on board with and share in the construction of meaning around the the peace process. And so they let their opponents do that, really. Um, And I think that. This was, uh, in many ways, an an, ex- an avoidable, an understandable but avoidable um, error, and um, one which we should take take note of um, for future peace processes worldwide. Um, but I think that it through that window um, of state society relations, I think the framing of the face of the government, you know, gives us a window into understanding um, how. How government society relations, if not managed well, can have disastrous consequences in the Colombian case. The peace agreement um, uh, was rejected in the referendum. Um, and this led to a major legitimacy deficit even though the peace deal was renegotiated um, those who opposed it hadn't said they didn't want peace they just said they wanted changes made to the agreement so the the government renegotiated it and most of the demands that the no campaign made were incorporated into the new agreement and this was ratified by congress and began to be implemented at the end of 2016. Um, The democratic center as I mentioned continued to oppose the peace deal they said the changes had just been cosmetic they didn't accept them Um, and um, and and every action in implementation came under fire um from from their uh from their campaign and 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 there was just a, a complete lack of legitimacy um for the peace deal and and the peace deal has suffered from that legitimacy deficit ever since which is not to say it's not legitimate what i'm saying is you know there's a big section of the colombian uh, society which does not see it as a legitimate peace process they believe it was implemented against their will uh, because they were given the chance to have a say on it and they said no. Um, and and that's meant that it's been very difficult to convince people of its benefits and that that has been partly why there has been a resurgence in violence after the FARC disarmed. Um, and, you know, 1,200 people or 1,300 people now, I think at last count, who campaigned for the peace deal, who were peace activists and social leaders of various kinds, um, who defended the peace process, have been assassinated since its signing. Um, So, you know, these kinds of the the lack of legitimacy in the public eye can have really um, stark effects. And this is not to say that everyone who's been um, killed has been killed by people because of the peace referendum. But there is a sort of climate of anti-peace accord um, that has been I think legitimated by the referendum result. It's in the same way that in the UK after the Brexit referendum there was a rise in hate crimes against immigrants. And it's not to say that everyone who voted for Brexit was a racist, absolutely not. But all of the people who were racist felt legitimated by the result of the referendum because there was racist rhetoric in the referendum campaign for the leave vote. And so I think, you know, there are real consequences of of these outcomes. And yeah. the same
1: thing the same thing is certainly true in, in of course, the US. Yeah. Um, so you've you've mentioned this that um, that there's a there was a second vote, right? And the really the, the time period that you're researching was the Santos government in its last year, basically, um, attempting to sort of regain the legitimacy of the peace agreement once so that the peace process could work. Um, but also, uh, they're, they're gearing up for a presidential vote in 2018, um, to see, you know, who, who would be at the head of the country implementing the peace agreement. Um, and this, this was another failed vote, right. For, for peace. Um, Ivan Duque is elected. Ivan Duque, no, no one really knew who he was until, uh. Alvaro Uribe, who was present from 2002 to 2010 and led opposition to the peace agreement, um, basically nominated him or, or gave him his endorsement. Um, and Duque Duque's party, I guess, in the, the democratic center, as you've mentioned, sort of promised to rip up the accords. I think what Duque has did was actually a little bit more complicated. It was more of a, a hidden sabotage. Um, but this this goes a little beyond the sort of the, the the focus on the book, but I'm I'm sure you're you're prepared to to talk about this. But what yeah what what do you think the consequences of Duque's election have been for uh, for Colombia's peace process and and for the face of the government?
0: Yeah, so I think. Um... We could say that Duque's, I mean, I, I haven't analysed Duque's government from the inside, um, <laughs> as I did with the Santos government. So it was, you know, I returned to the UK, I finished my field work after Duque took power. They, um, they might
1: be a little less friendly, I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think doing, doing participatory uh, work inside governments is deeply contingent, right? It depends on on their openness to you as a researcher, but also I think that I would have found it ethically much more problematic being positioned, even as a researcher, as an outsider within an institution that I sort of ethically and morally disagreed with. Um, and, and, and despite my many criticisms to the Santos government, I approved of the um, overall objective of, of making peace. Um, so And and I think that, you know, I'd like to add perhaps on that point, that was a point that I kind of missed out on saying earlier, is that despite the fact that you mentioned it, despite the fact that many um, people in Colombian society were not uh, with the Santos government, um, kind of politically speaking, um, and were very critical perhaps of this liberal peace model that was being proposed in the peace agreement, they were nevertheless on the side of the peace process with all of its limitations because they believed it was a first step that would be a pragmatic first step to get to a situation in which they could then work towards having a more radical government uh, perhaps a post liberal government and i think that that's really important because um you know quite often and i've heard many you know especially international scholars criticizing the colombian peace accord you know with 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 you know with with right cause in many ways, um, of for being too liberal and... Um, and, 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 and Can you say what political. you mean by, by
1: liberal peace?
0: Oh, the liberal peace framework is a, a, a term sort of used by by critical peace studies scholars to refer to a peace-building framework um, that comes from the kind of international liberal mindset, which, which upholds things like um, rule of law, democracy, um, free, freedom of, 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 of the market economy, neoliberal development, um, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, there, there are kind of grassroots scholars and, and radical scholars who see this as, as very kind of top-down, condescending, um, and the alternative that they propose is a kind of grassroots piece or an indigenous piece, um, which I'm very much in sympathy with, as were many of the uh, civil society people, interlocutors who I've been working with for, for many years, for over a decade. And yet, nevertheless, those same people were putting their lives on the line to protect the liberal peace agreement because they saw it as the best pragmatic step um, to, to, to ending the conflict and moving towards a situation in which they could then work towards more radical futures. Um, and I think that you know we have to sometimes put our ideals on the line um, and look at what our interlocutors are, um, are standing for. And I think that, you know, there are many, many courageous individuals who continue to risk their lives for the Colombian peace agreement and calling for implementation of this uh, limited version of peace because they believe it's a good pragmatic tool with which to transform the situation, even while upholding more radical imaginaries for the future. Um, And so I think that, you know, my book is an attempt to try to straddle both of those two things, you know, to remain critical of liberal peace building initiatives um, and to remain committed, you know, idealistically to more progressive imaginaries, but to stand by the pragmatism of um, some of my critical interlocutors who believed that this was an important tool. So that said, that was something I wanted to mention that... that, um, that had got lost from a previous comment that you made that I wanted to come back to, um, but on on so this this is important in regards to the Duque administration because I think that in many ways that same group of Colombian civil society maintained alive during the Duque government a certain mobilization around peace and it was thanks to that um, very courageous very. Uh, Hardworking, very dedicated effort around the country by different individuals and communities and groups um, of lobbying for the peace agreement, but also lobbying for peace more broadly conceived um, that managed to keep a little flame alive um, while Duque was was trying to sn- sort of snuff it out in many ways. And I think in the book, I talk about Duque's government being characterized by a certain kind of two-facedness. If I can continue to play with my Idea of the first of the face because he did not uh, completely destroy the agreement. Um, He couldn't because it was enshrined in Colombian law. Um, But he did uh, try to undermine it from the inside in various ways. He, you know, significantly underfunded key institutions. Um, He tried to attack the legal foundations of the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, which is the Transitional Justice Court that was created in the peace agreement. Um, But, you know, to the international community, he maintained a discourse of saying, oh, I'm implementing it. We're doing really well. We're doing better than the previous government because the international community was a really key player in the Colombian peace process from the UN to the U.S., which has been very involved in Colombia's war, um, to you know the unite to the European Union, various foreign governments and, and diplomatic missions um, and, and, and agencies, and they were all sort of very heavily pressing on the Duque government, saying you need to implement these things because they're um, commitments that the state has made to us. And this is again where the differentiation between state and government becomes useful because these were commitments of the state, so he couldn't back away from them. And also there was a lot of money coming in to the government from this commitment. So I think it was a it was a combination of the international community support and grassroots civil society lobbying that kept the peace process or, or what remains of the peace process alive during the Duke administration. So we had this kind of dual dual um, approach. But I think that you know the saddest thing of the Duke administration was not really, you know, the, the the explicit attacks. It was just the fact of having a government that was not explicitly committed to the peace process. It was, it was, you know, if there had been a government that had come along and said, look, with all of its problems and with the referendum result, nevertheless, you know, we're going to make a start, a fresh start on this peace agreement. You know, it's the best uh, roadmap to get us through this um this 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 situation that we're in it's already been started let's make the best of it um that might have helped to get more legitimacy to get more of the colombian people on board um perhaps not all of them because you can never have everyone in a in a country in agreement with a policy that would be just impossible i mean there's too much you know you're always going to get people who agree and disagree with different things that governments do that's normal um but I think, you know, having a government that just sort of almost, it was like the child that he didn't want, you know, he had to have it in his house because it was there when he got there, but it was a kind of um, orphan peace process. It had no father to keep it going um, and to stand by it while it, while it grew up into a, into a grown up. Um, you know, and now it's a bolshy teenager and it's <laughs> acting out in different ways, but um yeah, I think I think it, it was a really key moment—the first couple of years of any peace process—and not having a government that was standing by it had, you know, detrimental effects on it, no doubt.
1: And I think there are also ways that certain parts of the agreement sort of directly, with uh, bearing in mind your your very important point that it's it's not necessarily a trans, as transformative a peace agreement as we may have wanted. Uh, certain parts of the agreement, I'm thinking of like uh, the land fund and distribution of land to landless farmers, um, sort of directly went against the Uribista base that, that had put Duque in power, which, um, and sort of the power behind the, the democratic center, um, thinking of like massive cattle ranchers and, and, um, you know the way that rural land inequality has been sort of behind conflict, but it's it's not it's not just like oh we understand that land inequality may be driving conflict, uh, so we should address this. It's it's also there's their land inequality doesn't just mean people don't have land or have less land. It means that some people have a lot of land and they want to preserve it um, as as like one of the. One of the provisions of the accords that was that was changed following the referendum, right? There's like very political. There's important political interest behind behind the the opposition.
0: Absolutely, and 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 I think one person who's looked at this really clearly and also from a, a real insider perspective um, is Andres Garcia Trujillo, who's who was one of the negotiating team in Havana on the point of rural reform, and he did his PhD kind of somehow at the same time which is extraordinary (laughs) and then published his book with Routledge and it's about how the original agreement when it was published uh, when it was signed um, had a much more redistributionist agenda with land reform but then in the process of the renegotiation and then subsequently, when the agreement went through Congress and was translated into law, it was this redistributionist agenda was undermined by agribusiness and the political right. So it became a very watered down version of what it originally had sought to do, um, which, again, shows how politics will always get in the way or, or become part of peace making efforts. And that's one of the arguments I make in the book too. that peace is always political, it's political, because it involves a negotiation between a government and a war and and, and it's, you know, antagonists in war, it's also political, because it involves a negotiation between the government and the rest of the political establishment, in this case, the agribusiness elites and the opposition. Um, And it's also political, because it requires political will to make those reforms. And finally, it's political because it requires. Uh, it's because citizen perception of peace accords um, it depends on how they perceive national politics, and and that 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 those perceptions will change how people support or don't support peace processes. Um, yeah,
1: that, that's yeah, that's such a wonderful summarizing argument, Gwen. That I'm I'm almost tempted to just end right there, but I do want to ask you about one one more thing, um, which you you just made reference to, and I think it's important because. Um, we're, well, we're both members of the international community, sort of writ large as people who are interested in and to, to whatever extent involved in, in peace building in Colombia. Um, and you have actually a whole, a whole chapter dealing with um, the international community's impact on the peace process. Um, you, you just mentioned that, uh, that there was, and I think this is important to understanding the, the Duque administration's actions um, there was not only civil society pressure, but sort of international pressure uh, to, that didn't allow him to simply rip up the peace accords, as some members of his party had promised to do. That's at least part of the story. At the same time, uh, you have some really interesting and specific analysis. I'm going to steal a, a very specific um, anecdote from from your book. Um, Is
0: it the one about the USAID?
1: It is. It is. And I, I have <laughs> a particular. That's my favorite
0: anecdote. I like <laughs> not it too. To, I have not, a, not to get particularly at the Americans, but it, it's a particularly disturbing anecdote.
1: Well, as as a, a U.S. academic, I feel a responsibility to to get particularly at the Americans. So I will not be I will not be personally offended. But um, in the context, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, sort of as introduction in the context of a long history of us interference in colombian affairs sort of most in and the largest scale is uh plan colombia which was a ostensibly sort of anti-narcotics initiative um but was part of broader transformations in colombian society that colombian elites participated in but was also driven by uh, US diplomats sort of to turn Colombia into an extractive powerhouse, be able to access Colombian oil, gold, um, et cetera. So there, there's sort of this fraught history with the international community, even going back to the origins of the FARC, right, which was um, sort of US anti communist. This goes way beyond uh, the focus of your book, but sort of US uh, anti counterinsurgency pushing the Colombian government to attack communist, um, semi-communist, uh, peasant republics. Um, but specifically the, the anecdote that you use in the book, uh, has to do with the way that USAID, um, Agency for International Development was helping to fund, uh, parts of the peace agreement and some of the spaces that occurred, but then with, um, Particular uh, requirements based on that funding. I think probably you could tell the uh, the anecdote a lot better than I could since it's since it's yours. So maybe um, could you tell us what happened and then also sort of in general what you know what are the lessons in your work about the international community? Um, It's obviously a lot more complicated than saying the international community has been positive or negative or supported or not but yeah what are the lessons what what would your analysis of that be and and what what are the potential um opportunities opened up by uh the the real power that the the international community writ large uh, now we're reifying the internet i'm reifying the international community but that uh the international pressure has to to really uh influence uh national politics in colombia
0: So um, before I get drawn down the very tempting rabbit hole of what is the international community. <laughs> um, Sorry, that to, was a lot. <laughs> no, 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 that, that is an important rabbit hole. We will go down it hopefully very briefly. Um, but the specific anecdote in question, which I do think is quite illustrative um, of how much international funding can shape not only the peace process, uh, peace processes, of, of but also of the faces of foreign governments right um is in the u.s uh, so the u.s government had huge number of money i can't remember the exact amount off the top of my head um pledged to support the colombian peace process in a continuation of the plan colombia which supported the war efforts they were going to change this to peace colombia to support the peace efforts um it was billions of dollars and it was signed between obama and santos you know this was also a, a kind of time of i mean one of the one of the reasons why the peace process was initially successful, I think is because it took place at a time in which the geopolitical stars were aligned along a kind of liberal interface because you had Obama in the White House um you know you had you had the European Union hadn't yes yet sort of fallen apart <laughs> fallen into question with brexit um, and you also had Chavez alive, which Chavez was also a very important player um, in 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 the peace process. he helped. A lot and I think that's a contribution that we forget um but um yeah so the USAID had all of this money that they were supposed to use to support the peace process and they were using some of it to support the peace pedagogy initiatives of the Office of the High Commissioner for Peace that I was studying um but they couldn't finance anything where the FARC would be present because the FARC were still on the U.S. terrorist list the US, the EU had um taken the FARC off the terrorist list after they'd been disarmed and the US had been expected to follow suit, but then Donald Trump was in the White House, and so that obviously wasn't going to happen because he had a large voter base of kind of right-wing Latino voters, um, which you know, which which shaped his his stance on Colombia. Um and um this led to some very surreal Situations, for example, uh, one of the anecdotes that I tell in the book is about a peace pedagogy event that was planned that was going ahead, and the day before the event, um, a guy from the o- o- office of the High Commissioner for Peace was told to call one of the participants who was on the list and uninvite him because he was a former member of the FARC. He'd actually disarmed thirteen years previously in a previous kind of an individual disarmament program, not as part of the peace process. And he was working with kind of rural um, or urban youth um, in in a, in a neighborhood, which was why he'd been invited to participate in this, in this event. Um, and the guy from the office of the high commissioner for peace had to apologize uh, in the name of the office of the high commissioner in the name of the government and, and say, you know, please, please forgive us for this, this blunder. It's, it's our fault. And he felt terrible about it. He felt like a hypocrite. He said, um, You know, I was in the disarmament zones. I shook the hands of the FARC and said, welcome to civilian life. And now having to disinvite this guy, I feel terrible. It feels like I'm a hypocrite. Um, And this was this was uh, this had a a big effect on the event because all of the other people heard about it on the grapevine and got very cross with the government and um, kind of pointed fingers at the government and at the U.S. accusing the U.S. of kind of imperialist um, interference in Colombia, which it's got a history of doing. and um, But the most surreal thing about the whole story is that this guy who had to make this phone call was actually not an employee of the government itself, but an employee of USAID, because the USAID was funding um, a lot of the government contractors. And so this team of the peace pedagogy team was was composed in, exclusively of internationally paid contractors, because it was not something where the, which the government was prioritizing. And so the different directors of the team found funding from the international community both from the USAID but also from the organization the international organization for migration and various other foreign um, governments to fund the team Um, and so these people had to answer to competing demands placed on them from their boss in the government and their boss who was handling their contract in the international agency they were working for. Um, and so they 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 were in this kind of difficult, <laughs> difficult situation. So this is one of the things that I argue is that the international community um, or different bits of the international community um, give shape to the government's face, both through employment of contractors, which kind of fragments the government itself Um, by perpetuating this neoliberal reliance on contractors and creating this kind of surreal periphery of the state where these people actually represent and give face as the government, but actually work for international entities, Um, and also by conditioning the participation in spaces they fund and by creating complicated um, requirements on their paperwork, which is another part of the story that I tell, um, how the paperwork created barriers for civil society to do Alternative sorts of pedagogy projects with 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 the government. So the international community, you know, we can say there are many different kinds of international community. You know, and and there was a lot of different international involvement in the peace process in Colombia overall, um, both from kind of explicit funding like the USAID, but also. there was the presence of different guarantor countries at the negotiating table, although they were not mediated, they were direct talks. There was no international mediation. There there was a kind of international accompaniment of different countries um, of of Venezuela, Cuba, Norway and Chile at the negotiating table. Um, Then you have things like the Nobel Peace Prize Committee deciding to give Santos the Nobel Peace Prize just after the referendum as a way of kind of bolstering the legitimacy of the peace agreement and helping him get through that difficult moment to international experts of all kinds being invited by both the government and by the FARC to support their um, negotiating positions, to um, uh, what else? All sorts of international agencies getting written into the implementation plan to support specific aspects of the implementation. And it became a kind of international status thing to say that oh yeah our agency was advising on the colombian peace process it it becomes a currency of of status in its own right um and which still exists i think um it's still a kind of currency and now you have you know people who've worked on the colombian peace process who can go around and offer that expertise to other peace processes worldwide um which is useful i mean i'm not saying that's not useful but it's it's a kind of Uh, status thing as well Um, and so I think that the effects can be multiple as I've mentioned earlier one of the things that kept the peace process alive during the Duque administration was the international community's pressure on Duque to implement the peace accord so I think that's a good thing Um, but then you also have these surreal encounters like the one that I discussed about the USAID which undoubtedly undermined the government's credibility um in a context of extreme historical distrust in the state, which it was trying very hard to work to overcome and um, and, and 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 you know this this really went against that effort. Um, so you know, just like the government is not just one thing, the international community is not just one thing. And I really like what you mentioned about how we as foreign scholars who care about Colombia, who've worked a long time in Colombia, are also part of that community. And I think we have to situate ourselves in a responsible way and kind of reflect critically on what it means to do scholarship on Colombia and how the positions that we take in academia can also um, be useful or harmful to Colombian peace efforts. So I you know I think it's very, it's very important to measure what we say and, and think very carefully about how we say it. Um, Because, yeah, because international academia can also um, contribute in a very small way to helping or hindering um, such efforts. And um, I try very hard to do the former.
1: Are there things that within, are there choices you made in in writing the book? I mean, I think the book is, uh, you you could not just be positive about Colombia's peace process, obviously. I mean, that, that would that would be dishonest, but is were there um, points where you where you felt torn about including particular details or analyses um, in terms of sort of this this question of the the political imperative of legitimating the peace process, but at the same time trying to understand some of the things that that have gone wrong or not been enough or or been errors.
0: Yeah, I think I, I wrestled a lot with. Um my critique of the Colombian government's peace pedagogy. And I use the word critique because I think that sometimes in academia, we get confused between critique and criticism um, and being critical of something versus criticizing something. And I think, you know, it's very easy to point fingers um, and and say, oh, you know, you did this wrong. Um, but uh, it's, it's also very easy to be critical from the outside without knowing what it's like to try to do those things on the inside and a peace process is messy. It's difficult. You have to improvise a lot of the time. Um, and so I think what I try to do in the book is strike a balance between showing the logic of how peace pedagogy developed while also holding it to account, um, and not blaming the people. Necessarily, they are products of a specific context and not poking at them as individuals, but seeing them as individuals as part of a wider cultural framework and as a wider historical context. And in particular, for example, I think, you know, one of the main criticisms I make um, of the peace pedagogy was that it was too focused on technical details. They were too um, kind of interested in trying to be very rational and faithful to the technicalities of the accord um but this there was a logic to this this emerged in a specific way because the talks were confidential and so they had to stick very closely to technicalities and this emerged in a kind of improvised manner and i think that that's why it's so valuable to learn from it for future peace processes worldwide because they they had to make this stuff up on the spot there was no blueprint for this they were having to respond in a live situation you know academics do not have to respond to any live situations we get time to sit and read and think and think and rewrite and contemplate. And that is a luxury that people who are working in the fast-paced, urgent scenario of a peace process don't have. And so I think that we have to be generous with our critique while also not being um, apologists. And in no way am I you know, an apologist for, for the Santos government. Um, I think they... They learned lessons that the rest of the world can benefit from, and we have to understand the the way they came to those lessons within a specific cultural and historical framework.
1: No, and I think uh, I think your book is wonderfully empathetic to to people who who deserve uh, critique, but who also, as as is clear, is as, as your attitude were were and probably still are committed to to building peace um and i think the lessons are not only for the international community but um this this peace process is ongoing and now we should yeah they're useful for
0: the the the, useful for the petra government i mean the book is now being translated into spanish and i wish it was ready now so that i could offer it to the petra administration but i'm afraid they might not have time to read such a academic book anyway
1: yeah, no, I'm, I bet they would be interested, actually. And the, the Petro uh, administration, we should say, is trying to negotiate another, a total peace agreement with um, sort of the remaining armed groups, um, which, has, which has been challenging for all kinds of reasons. And then if, if and when that is negotiated, we'll then enter into uh, a lot of the challenges that, that you described so wonderfully um, throughout this book, um, so the book is "The Face of Peace" by Gwen Burney, uh, University of Chicago Press. Um, again, congratulations! It's it's a really fascinating, uh, really fascinating book and, and a really interesting um, read that sort of takes the reader inside this this kind of unique social space. Um, so, thank you very much for taking the time, Gwen.
0: Thank you so much, Alex, and thanks to everyone for listening.